The Logical Character of Ideas by John Dewey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Logical Character of Ideas by John Dewey. Said John Stuart Mill, to draw inferences has been said to be the great business of life. It is the only occupation in which the mind never ceases to be engaged. If this be so, it seems a pity that Mill did not recognize that this business identifies what we mean when we say mind. If he had recognized this, he would have cast the weight of his immense influence not only against the conception that mind is itself a substance, but also against the conception that it is a collection of existential states or attributes without any substance in which to inhere and would thereby have done much to free logic from epistemological metaphysics. In any case, an account of intellectual operations and conditions from the standpoint of the role played and position occupied in the business of drawing inferences is a different sort of thing from that which regards them as having an existence per se, and which treats them as marking some sort of existential material distinct from the things which figure in inference drawing. This latter type of treatment is that which underlies the psychology which itself has adopted uncritically the remnants of the metaphysics of soul substance, the idea of accidents without the substance. Footnote. This conception of consciousness as a sort of reduplicate world of things comes to us, I think, chiefly from Hume's conception that the mind is nothing but a heap, a collection of different perceptions united together by certain relations. Treaties of Human Nature, Book One. Part 4, Section 2. For the evolution of this sort of notion out of the immaterial substance notion, see Bush, a factor in the genesis of idealism, in the James Festschrift. End footnote. This assumption from metaphysical psychology, the assumption of consciousness as an existent stuff or existent process, is then carried over into the examination of knowledge so as to make the theory of knowledge not logic and account of the ways in which valid inferences or conclusions from things to other things are made but epistemology we have therefore the result so unfortunate for logic that logic is not free to go its own way but is comprised by the assumption that knowledge goes on not in terms of things i use things in the broadest sense as equaling race and covering affairs concerns acts as well as things in the narrower sense but in terms of a relation between things and a peculiar existence made up of consciousness or else between things and functional operations of this existence if it could be shown that psychology is essentially not a science of states of consciousness but of behavior conceived as a process of continuous readjustment then the undoubted facts which go by the name of sensation perception image emotion concept would be interpreted to mean peculiar i e specifically qualitative epochs phases and crises in the scheme of behavior the supposedly scientific basis for the belief that states of consciousness inherently define a separate type of existence would be done away with inferential knowledge knowledge involving reflection psychologically viewed would be assimilated to a certain mode of readaptation of functions involving shock and the need of control knowledge in the sense of direct non-reflective presence of things would be identified psychologically with relatively stable or completed adjustments i cannot profess to speak for psychologists 
but it is an obvious characteristic of the contemporary status of psychology that one school, the so-called functional or dynamic, operates with nothing more than at most a conventional and perfunctory reference to states of consciousness, while the orthodox school has to make constant concessions to ideas of the behavior type. It introduces the conception of fatigue, practice, and habituation. It makes its fundamental classifications on the basis of physiological distinctions, e.g. the centrally initiated and the peripherally initiated, which, from a biological standpoint, are certainly distinctions of the structures which are involved in the performance of functions. One of the aims of these studies in logical theory was to show, on the negative or critical side, that the type of logical theory which professedly starts its account of knowledge from mere states of consciousness is compelled at every crucial juncture to assume things and to define its so-called mental states in terms of things. Footnote. See, for example, page 31. Thus, that which is nothing but a state of our consciousness turns out straightway to be a specifically determined objective fact in a system of facts. And page 58. Actual sensation is determined as an event in a world of events. End footnote. And, on the positive side, to show that, logically considered, such distinctions as sensation, image, etc., mark instruments and crises in the development of controlled judgment i.e. of inferential conclusions. It perhaps was not surprising that this effort should have been criticized, not on its own merits, but on the assumption that this correspondence of the functional, psychological, and the logical points of view was intended in terms of the psychology which obtained in the critic's mind, to wit the psychology based on the assumption of consciousness as a separate existence or process. Thus when Dr. Pratt, in a recent discussion, Footnote, this journal, volume 5, page 131, note, end footnote, says that the aforesaid essays might well have been written from the standpoint of solipsism. I accordingly find an unintended compliment. Not that they were written, I hasten to add, from the solipsistic standpoint, but that they were written from a logical standpoint to which the solipsist controversy is irrelevant. Since a logical inquiry is concerned only with inferential relations among things, not with preconceptions about a lonely consciousness or soul or self, the assumption of a separate ontological world of consciousness, which either is the self or is the possession of some self, simply does not enter into the discussion. When Dr. Pratt speaks of a private stream of consciousness, of outer realities that never come within one's own private stream of consciousness, and of a relation between these realities and our judgments about them, a relation which from the nature of the case one can never experience, and puts a dilemma on the basis of these assumptions. Page 131. He puts, indeed, a dilemma to those who hold to these assumptions, but he misses the point of the logical studies. Whether with such assumptions Dr. Pratt and others who hold to them can logically escape solipsism, except by saying they escape it, is also a matter for them to consider. In the earlier part of his article, however, Dr. Pratt seems to admit that logical inquiry may be carried on in its own terms, without being compromised by the necessity of accommodating it to foregone epistemological assumptions. He accepts the position of the concrete situation, page 123, and emphasizes the notion that the center of the problem of the truth of ideas is found in the problem of judgment, page 130. 
Footnote. Just how this doctrine is to be reconciled with the other assertion that the problem of knowledge is concerned with the relation, which by the nature of the case cannot be experienced, between judgments in a private stream of consciousness and unexperienced objects outside the stream, it would be interesting to find out. End footnote. He gives an illustration, moreover, on the basis of which points at issue may be logically, not epistemologically, discussed. Dr. Pratt says, Thus I believe my friend B is in Constantinople. If B really is in Constantinople, my thought is true. I confess it is impossible for me to see how anything could be simpler than this. Page 124. In short, a thought is true if the object of thought is as you think it. Just before this, however, page 123, Dr. Pratt has discriminated another sense of truth, which marks a current, a correct, and an intelligible usage. This is the identification of truth with known fact, italics and original. What is the relation of these two meanings? Dr. Pratt insists, quite correctly as it seems to me, that truth or falsity is a character of ideas only when ideas are in judgment. Only that is, as I understand it, when they intend a certain objective reference. The men who deny the existence of the antipodes presumably had the idea, or they could not have denied its truth, and the object was as they thought it when they had the idea. But their idea was not true, because their judgments denied a certain objective connection. And when I believe my friend is in Constantinople, I do not merely entertain the idea as a floating image, I intend a factual reference. In short, the question of truth is not whether an object is as you think it, unless the term think means as you judge it to be. The logical idea is short for a certain judgment about a thing. It states the way an object is judged to be, the way we take it in the inference process, as distinct from the way it actually may be. If we compare this conception of truth with that of identification with known fact, we get some striking results and some even more striking questions. When there is a known fact, there is a known fact and no judgment and no idea. The known fact may very well be the outcome of a judgment, but it cannot be part of any judgment that involves a thought of B's whereabouts. Or, since it is not the word judgment we are concerned with, the kind of judgment occurring when it is a known fact where B is is radically different from that occurring when, his whereabouts not being certain, we inferentially judge him to be at Constantinople. Since the latter involves inference, consideration of evidence, it involves some doubt. Do we have any thought, as a part of an intended objective reference, of B's presence in Constantinople, save as we have also the thought of his possible presence somewhere else, plus the conviction that the weight of evidence is in favor of his being in Constantinople. These questions suggest that before we can raise intelligently the question of the truth of ideas, we must consider the question of their status in judgment, judgment being regarded as the typical expression of the inferential operation. 1. Do ideas present themselves except in situations which are doubtful and inquired into? Do they exist side by side with the facts to which they refer when these facts are themselves known, do they exist except when judgment is in suspense? 2. Are the ideas anything else except the suggestions, conjectures, hypotheses, theories, 
I use an ascending scale of terms, tentatively entertained during a suspended conclusion. 3. Do they have any part to play in the conduct of inquiry? Do they serve to direct observation, colligate data, and guide experimentation, or are they otios? Footnote. When it is said that an idea is a plan of action, it must be remembered that the term plan of action is a formal term. It throws no light upon what the action is with respect to which an idea is the plan. It may be chopping down a tree, finding a trail, or conducting a scientific research in mathematics, history, or chemistry. End footnote. 4. If the ideas have a function in directing the reflective process expressed in judgment, does success in performing the function, that is, in directing to a conclusion which is stable, have anything to do with the logical worth or validity of the ideas? 5. And finally, does this matter of validity have anything to do with the question of truth? Does truth mean something inherently different from the fact that the conclusion of one judgment the known fact, previously unknown, in which it terminates, is itself applicable in further situations of doubt and inquiry, and is judgment properly more than tentative, save as it terminates in a known fact, i.e. a fact present without the intermediary of reflection. When these questions, I mean of course questions which are exemplified in these queries, are answered, we shall perhaps have gone as far as it is possible to go with reference to the logical character of ideas. The question may then recur as to whether the ideas of the epistemologist, that is, existences in a purely private stream of consciousness, remain as something over and above, not yet accounted for, or whether they are perversions and misrepresentations of logical characters. I propose to give a brief dogmatic reply in the latter sense, where, and insofar as, there are unquestioned objects, there is no consciousness. There are just things in their factual relations. When there is uncertainty, there are dubious, suspected objects, things hinted at, guessed at. Such objects have a distinct status, and it is the part of good sense to give them, as occupying that status, a distinct caption. Consciousness is a term often used for this purpose, and I see no objection to that term, provided it is recognized to mean such objects as are problematic, plus the fact that in their problematic character they may be used more effectively even than accredited objects to direct observations and experiments which finally relieve the doubtful features of the situation. Footnote. Such a use differs from that of Perry, who would employ the term to connote formerly accepted but now definitely discredited objects recognized errors, illusions, etc. End footnote. Such objects may turn out valid, or they may not. But in any case, they may be used. They may be internally manipulated and developed through ratiocination into explicit statement of their implications. They may be employed as standpoints for selecting and arranging data, and as methods for conducting experiments. In short, they are not merely hypothetical, they are working hypotheses. Meanwhile, their aloofness from accredited objectivity may lead us to characterize them as merely ideas, or even as mental states, provided once more we mean by mental state just this logical status. We have examples of such ideas and symbols. A symbol, I take it, is always itself, 
existentially a particular object. A word, an algebraic sign, is just as much a concrete existence as is a horse, a fire engine, or a fly speck. But its value resides in its representative character, in its suggestive and directive force for operations, which, when performed, lead us to non-symbolic objects, which without symbolic operations would not be apprehended, or at least be as easily apprehended. It is, I think, worth noting that the capacity A of entertaining objects as mere symbols and B of employing symbols instrumentally furnishes the only safeguard against dogmatism, i.e. uncritical acceptance of any suggestion that comes to us vividly, and that it furnishes the only basis for intelligently controlled experiments. I do not think, however, that we should have the tendency to regard ideas as private, as personal, if we stop short at this point. If we had only words or other symbols uttered by others, or written or printed, we might call them, when in objective suspense, mere ideas. But we should hardly think of these ideas as our own states. Such extra-organic stimuli, however, would not be adequate logical devices. They are too rigid, too objective in their own existential status. Their meaning and character are too definitely fixed. For effective discovery, we need things which are more easily manipulated, which are more transitive, more easily dropped and changed. Intraorganic events, adjustments within the organism, that is, adjustments of the organism considered not with reference to the environment, but simply as events of their own account, are much better suited to stand as representatives of genuinely dubious objects. An object which is really doubted is by its nature precarious and inchoate, vague. What is a thing when it is not yet discovered and yet is being tentatively entertained and tested. Ancient logic never got beyond the conception of an object whose logical place, whose subsumptive position as a particular with reference to some universal, was doubtful. It never got to the point where it could search for particulars which in themselves as particulars were doubtful. Hence, it was a logic of proof, of deduction, not of inquiry, of discovery, and of induction. It was hard up against its own dilemma. How can a man inquire? For either he knows that for which he seeks, and hence does not seek, or he does not know, in which case he cannot seek, nor could he tell if he found. The individualistic movement of modern life detached, as it were, the individual, and allowed purely private, i.e. intraorganic, events to have transitivity and temporarily a worth of their own. These events are continuous with extra-organic events in origin and eventual outcome, but they may be considered in temporary displacement as uniquely existential. In this capacity, they serve for the elaboration of a delayed but more adequate response in a radically new direction. So treated, they are tentative, dubious, but experimental, anticipations of an object. They are subjective, i.e. individualistic, surrogates of public, cosmic things, and they may be so manipulated and elaborated as to terminate in public things which without them would not exist as empirical objects. Footnote. I owe this idea, both in its historical and in its logical aspects, to my former colleague, Professor Mead, of the University of Chicago. End footnote. The distinct perception, then, of intra-organic events not as merely effects or distorted refractions of cosmic objects, but as inchoate future cosmic objects in process of empirical construction, solves to my mind the paradox 
of so-called subjective and private things which yet have objective and universal reference, and which operate so as to lead to objective consequences that test their own value. When a man can say this color is not necessarily the color of the glass, or the picture, or even of the object reflected, but is at least my color, an event which I may refer to my organism, till I get surety of other reference, he is for the first time emancipated from the dogmatism of unquestioned reference, and is set upon a path of experimental inquiry, which may lead to the discovery of a previously unexperienced thing, and possibly to a thing of a qualitatively different order from anything previously experienced. I am not here concerned with trying to demonstrate that this is the correct mode of interpretation. I am only concerned to point out its radical difference from the view of the critic, who, holding to the two-world theory of existences, which from the start are divided into the fixedly objective and the fixedly psychical, interprets the view that the distinction between the objective and the subjective is a logical, practical distinction in terms of his own theory. Whether the logical, as against the ontological, theory be true or false, it can hardly be fruitfully discussed without a preliminary sympathetic apprehension of it. End of The Logical Character of Ideas by John Dewey